You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. In your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, just keep your hands up for a worship guide. You know, we're finishing a series on resolving conflict. It's been challenging. Uh, Obviously, it's been challenging for a lot of reasons. I'll share some of that in just a moment. But this is one of those sermon series that, you know, you, you, you kind of, as, as a pastor, you work through a lot of, uh, just a lot of mixed emotions because so much of what I deal with as a pastor is, is conflict resolution, to be honest. I mean, 90% of what I'm dealing with on a day-to-day basis, whether it's just on-campus stuff or students in the college or you know, even students in the high school or, or church members or families or husbands or wives or employees. I mean, it's just, it is managing resolution, conflict re- re- resolution. And, and so you've got a lot of issues that need to be addressed. We've addressed a lot of them, haven't we? Matthew chapter 5, right? Hey, if you bring your gift to the altar and all of a sudden you realize, hey, I, I, the Holy Spirit reminds you of someone you need to get right. What, is, what does scripture say? Leave it at the altar. Go get it right. Which teaches us, resolve it now. Get it done. Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't even worship. Go get it right with your brother. Come back and let's, 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 let's worship. And God's teaching us there that before we can get things right with him, oftentimes we need to get things right with others. In Matthew 18, we found out that scripture was so clear when it said, if your brother has sinned against you or you've sinned against your brother, if you have ought with a brother, go to him. Go to him, and then if that doesn't work, take someone with you, and then it, then go get the elders, and, and on and on. We learned just line upon line. I mean, just like right there in Scripture, it was so cool because the Bible is so clear, and you're just reading it thinking, this works, this works. I have a Scripture for you this morning, and it is not one I'm going to come back to, but it's one I'm going to start with. It's our text. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It is not on the screen Because I think we need our Bibles in church at least one time. We need to look not at a screen, but at the Word on a phone or or iPad or even better yet, you know, written copy. But in 1 Thess 4.2 it says, For you know, you know what instructions we gave you. I want you to think about this. I'm going to read it slow and with meaning. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. This is about your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness. Verse 6. And that no one transgress or wrong his brother. Verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this. Whoever doesn't listen to this disregards not the pastor, disregards not the preacher, disregards not man, but God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. You see, over the past several weeks, as we've been talking about conflict resolution, you've been hearing these messages. And if you don't do what the word says then we need to understand, according to Scripture, you are doing that to your own detriment. This is not about listening 
to a man. This is about obeying God's word. And so don't reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is sanctifying you. Amen. We're becoming more like Jesus as we, as we respond to the stirring of our hearts. The Holy Spirit of God within us to get something right with someone. Now, don't get hard-hearted. How do you get hard-hearted? Here's how you get hard-hearted. You reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The more you reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the more hard-hearted you get. You reject, you reject, you reject. Your heart gets harder and harder and harder. And you're not rejecting man. So let me challenge you one more time. One more time. In this final sermon in this series. To really look within. Because the issue is not clarity on how God feels about conflict resolution. Is it, is it not? I mean, God's pretty clear about it. Wouldn't you say? I mean, we haven't really had a lot of questions about whether or not God is for this. I mean, God is all about conflict resolution. But you know what the issue is? It's about the thousand practicalities that come up when you think about trying to obey God in this area. It's like, yeah, but what about this? And what about that? And yeah, but this. And, 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 and then all of a sudden we've got gray area. So what happens is we begin to kind of back off because we're, we just feel like we've got this really unusual, exceptional situation that kind of gets us out of having to deal with it. But God's not looking for us to have a way out. He wants us to find answers to our questions. Now, there's a lot of questions. I'm going to answer five questions today that I feel would be the top five hard questions to answer when it comes to conflict resolution after 26 years of pastoring. This is the top five I could come up with. These are the hardest ones. These are the ones that, that you know, have required more uh, study and more time and even more patience. But there may be a thousand more questions. And I'll do my best to answer any question. If you, if you want to email a question or write it on a piece of paper and hand it to me and we can sit down and talk about it at some point, I'd be glad to do that. But these are five questions. And I, although I can't answer all of the questions, I'm going to try to answer these five this morning and then others as they come. Number one, ready? Hard question number one. How do you reconcile with someone who is beyond reach? How do you reconcile with someone who... Doesn't Scripture teach us in Matthew 5? I mean, there is this conversation about people who are really hard to reach. I mean, in fact, it says, you know, to love our enemies, to do good to those that persecute us. These are hard to reach people. Would you not agree? I mean, these are folks we're, we're trying to reach. We're trying to reconcile. We're trying to help them. But, you know, we, you know, we, we go a mile. And then what does God say? Well, go two. You know, if, if they ask for our coat, God says, well, give them that plus give them your tunic. How many you got? I got a lot of those lying around tunics, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot the scripture says about just going above and beyond. But this is someone you just can't seem to get through to. How do you reconcile with that person? First of all, nowhere in scripture are we commanded to pressure someone into a right relationship with us. Nowhere. You'll not find that in, in the Bible. Where you got to pressure someone into being right with us. All that God requires us to do, church, is everything we can do. That's it. Let me give you a passage. Romans 12, 8. 18, excuse me. If possible. Now, those are the key words. Those two words in this verse 
are divinely inspired, like the rest of them, but especially this morning, those two words. Every word of God is important. And this morning, those two words are huge when it comes to conflict resolution. If possible, so far as it depends on you, so far as it depends on me, if at all possible, live peaceably with all. Do everything you can. Do everything you can do, but there are limiters. Am I right? And there's limiters. These are the questions. These are the situations. But what about this and what about that? Well, if possible, do everything you can do. Do the best you can do. Let me give you some limiters in reconciliation. There's more than this, but how about these three that obviously have limitations? Number one, what about a non-believer? What about someone who, who doesn't have Jesus Christ in their hearts? They, they, they don't <clears throat> discern things with the Spirit's help. They, they've never been regenerated. They've never been born again. So they don't have the Holy Spirit living within them. And, and we can't expect them to respond the way that a child of God would respond whose eyes have been opened to Scripture and understanding things that, that maybe a lost person does not understand. What do you do when it comes to that situation with a non-believer? You do everything you can do. If possible, all that is within you, live peaceably with all men. Understanding their situation, having compassion on them and trying to work it out. If I've got a neighbor who's lost and they, they don't talk to me, they mistreat me. Maybe they, there's certain things. If I park my car, you know, and I'm, you know, one foot on the property, I get, you know, uh, the police are at my house knocking on my door. Are you with me? Anybody ever had that kind of a neighbor? I'm just saying that kind of a situation. What do you do? You, you do all you can do. You do everything you can do. You love them. Remember, maybe on a special occasion, maybe you can bring them over some cookies. You say, but they slammed the door in my face, so they just don't receive them or, or whatever. I don't know what kind of things you're going through, but I do know this. Scripture says when it comes to the non-believer, there's limitations, yes, but do everything you can do. Number two, what if they have moved away? You know, man, I just missed my opportunity. Now they're gone. I don't know where they live. They've, they've moved somewhere. I haven't seen them in 10, 15, 20 years. I don't know if I'll ever see them again. A couple of suggestions. Number one, try to find them. Have you tried? Have you looked? Have you? There's a lot of ways now to find people who used to be in our lives. And there was a problem. There was hurt. There was some pain. There were some things that were done wrong. We haven't seen them in a while. We haven't dealt with it, if possible. What about Joseph. Remember Joseph in the Bible? It's a great story. Joseph was, you know, in, in good standing with his brothers until they beat him up and threw him in a pit. And you know the rest of the story. It got pretty ugly, didn't it? In fact, it even got so bad that Joseph was thrown in jail after, you know, escaping the grasp of, of, of the queen there. And, and, and he gets falsely accused, thrown in jail. And long story short, things get worse and worse and worse before they get a little better. And once they get better, it's been now decades since he's seen his brothers who wronged him. But what did God do for Joseph? God brought, through a strange series of events, God brought his brothers right before him and gave Joseph an opportunity. And Joseph seized that moment to get things right with his brothers. And it's an amazing story. God can do that for so many of us in this room who have lost contact with someone who we just never got it right with what if we tried? What if we began to pray, Lord, open up a door of opportunity to bring that person back into my life? Number three, what if they've died? 
What if they're dead? What if, what if I don't have that opportunity? I mean, I, I missed it while they were here, and, and, I, and, I, and I did have a root of bitterness in my heart, and, and I just, you know, in fact, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating to make a point. I'm not thinking of anything or anyone. I'm just saying, you know, maybe there was even a time where I wished they were dead, and I just, I was, I was in a bad place, and pastor, I'd, and I'd, I'd like to get things right, but you're right. The question is, how do you reconcile with someone who's beyond reach? Can I suggest writing a letter? Can I suggest getting a piece of paper out and a pen and write a letter that just, just to that person? You say, well, that's kind of silly. Well, n- nobody will ever see it, but maybe it'll help you and minister to you and give you an opportunity to say things to them that you never said, but maybe should have said. Here, here's my point. Romans 12, 18. Here's my point. Look at it. If possible. That's the point. If possible. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do everything you can do. Number two, second question. How do you handle someone who is in authority, who refuses to reconcile? Authority is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because, isn't it? Because authority is ordained by God. I'm going to use an umbrella as an illustration here today because I think it's just the best way to get, to lay the foundation to answer this question. What? How do you handle someone in authority who refuses to reconcile? So we've got this umbrella that represents some of the authorities that God has placed over us. We are under authority. Government is ordained by God. And, and, and so we live in, in this country. Government has been ordained by God. We live under the authority of some of the laws of this land. Even the tax laws of this land. Things of that nature. We, we live under that authority. What about the authority of, of the police department? You know. We live under that authority. They, they pull us over for uh, the protection of others around us. If we've been speeding or if someone has done something wrong and, and we have to face the consequences of that decision based on the authority that's been placed over this city when it comes to protecting its citizens. What about elders in the church? God has ordained elders in the church and, and we recognize now more than ever as our church has transitioned that God has given us a plurality of leadership men who have uh, been given the responsibility to lead our church spiritually, men who we can place ourselves under, get advice from, counsel from, wisdom from, as we go through some difficult seasons in life? What about parents? We're under the authority of our parents. And, and kids, I would highly recommend, it. there is protection when you're under the umbrella of the authority of your parents. It's a God-ordained institution called the home. What about marriage? What, what, what about the godly husband who is over his family? I'm not talking about in the sense that it's been taught oftentimes where the husband is a dictator. You know me no, long enough now and you've heard me preach enough now to understand that I'm not speaking when I say the husband is the head of the home. That, that is in the context of scriptural teaching, which is beautiful and works like magic when the husband is godly. Amen. But what do I do? What do I do if the authority structure is failing? What do you do then? It's, it's kind of a difficult situation, isn't it? Here's this person in leadership. Here's this person in charge. What do I do? Well, King David lived in that exact situation. Many of you would understand and know a little bit about it, And I'll try to review enough of it to, so everybody can kind of get light bulbs on here. But, but those of you that are familiar with the story of King David and King Saul know that things started off beautifully, didn't they? King Saul was in charge. King David was this little shepherd boy. What happened? 
King Saul had some issues in his health. King David could play the harp like nobody else. David enters Saul's life by playing the harp. It becomes somewhat of a medicinal effect on him. He's calmed by it. He loves it. He literally takes David into his life, into his home. He adopts David, really. For, I mean, it's the best way I can put it. He adopts him. He, he, he almost becomes a father figure to David. Goliath comes along. Crazy thing happens, right? This little teenage boy. You know, nobody else will fight Goliath. This teenage boy says, is there not a cause? And, you know, King Saul says, why don't you wear my armor? And David tries it on. It doesn't work. He's just too small. Saul's too big. So what does he get? He gets the slingshot and the stones. Remember, it's a pretty cool story. And he kills Goliath. Everybody's cool with it at first. But then there's this song that comes out that hits the top of the charts. Dave, uh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Saul gets jealous. He begins to realize that young David is more popular than he is. And so we find a passage of scripture where literally on two different occasions, Saul tried to kill him. Kill this boy whom he loved. Kill this young man whom had saved the nation. Two times he throws a spear at him to try to literally take his life. David flees. He runs. David is hiding in a cave with some of his closest confidants. Saul walks in to take a leak. That's scripture. It says he went in to relieve himself. You wouldn't know what that means, but you know what take a leak means. We're living in the 21st century, guys. Get over it. So Saul's going potty. It, that's what, I mean, is that okay? Justin, is that okay? I mean, it's what happened, right? He's in the cave going potty, and David's guys say, there he is. Kill him. Take him out, Dave. And Dave says, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. I can't do it. And in this passage, we find some amazing truth. I want to read it for you. 1 Samuel, it'll be on the screen. It's 1 Samuel chapter 24. Follow along. I'm not going to read the whole thing, Nate, but I'll I'll coach you through it here. We'll read the first little bit here. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. This is, after all, what I just talked about happened. And David says to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? David's saying this to Saul. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And and Saul, some even told me to kill you. But I said, I'm not going to put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, he called him dad. Dad, see the corner of your robe in my hand? Look, this is what I, 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 I want to prove to you that I was that close. I cut a portion of your garment off. Look at it. For the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you. Though you thought to take my life. You've wanted to kill me. But I, I've not wanted to hurt you. Fast forward, Nate, down to verse um, 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words in, to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. 
And it seemed as if Saul got it. I'm feeling pretty good, right? Saul seemed sorrowful. Guess how long it lasted? About 10 seconds. It's crazy. I mean, I would think, I'm reading that and thinking, oh, this is going to be such a good story. It gets worse. Saul acts like he's sorry. He kind of says he's sorry, but he really wasn't sorry. He went right back to doing the things he was doing. And he was in authority. What do you do? This is crazy. What do you do when a, when a pastor gets out of whack? Recently, I, I was talking last week. A pastor called me for counsel about he had just taken a church, and a big church. And, and, and as he took it, things were going smoothly until all of a sudden things began to surface because they were paying the former pastor a pretty decent severance pay. And all of a sudden, news began to surface that he had had a couple of DUIs. And he had embezzled $500,000 of the church, given it to a woman for sexual harassment. It's crazy stuff. And all this stuff was coming up and people were talking to this new pastor about what to do about it. So they confront the old pastor. They go to him like David and Saul. Conversation. Facts are explained. Everything's given. Here's what we've got. And he kind of repents and says, look, yes, some of that's true. I did this, I did that. Tries to still kind of cover some stuff up. But he, obviously, he wants his 50000 a year severance pay. The church is wondering if they can pay. So all of a sudden, things begin to get ugly. And, and the man, though he seems sorrowful, does not repent. And now it's turned into this big, massive church issue with lawyers involved. It is so sad. What do you do when authority won't repent? What do you do when you go to them and they won't respond? Well, let's learn four things from this text, shall we? Number one, notice it's not wrong to remove yourself for your own safety. It's not wrong. If you, David fled. He removed himself from the situation. He was hiding in a cave. Listen, it is not wrong to remove yourself for the safety of your children. If someone in authority is not listening, not repenting, not getting things right, and obviously things can escalate. We've already talked about how that I've, I've messed up. I've made mistakes in my life. But I'm grateful today that what I've learned is you can keep short accounts with God and man. Amen? My wife and I have never had a situation in our marriage that has risen much above about an hour argument that was solved before the sun went down. Isn't God good? But you let something go a day, a week, a month, a year, two years, three years, four years, and all of a sudden, it can become a really big, big, big issue. And sometimes you have to remove yourself for your own safety, and it's not wrong to do that. But it is wrong, number two, to take vengeance. It's wrong. It's wrong to take vengeance. Saul said, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. Isn't it, isn't it beautiful how Scripture teaches us these things? Isn't it great? How many of you love the Bible? Amen. I love the Bible. I'm just like, I'm always blown away by God's word just because it's so clear. And so David does not get vengeance. He says, look, Saul, I'm not, I'm not going to fight fire with fire. You want to kill me? I'm not going to do that. You are the Lord's anointed. You've been placed in this position. Number three, notice it's not a matter of fact and explanation. It's not a matter of fact and explanation. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of people that can be given the facts. And there's a lot of people that can be given information, clear information, unarguable information. Here it is. Here's the issue. Here's what happened. Here's the facts. David gave the facts, did not? He gave it all. Look, here's the quote. Look, look, here it is, Saul. He gave all the facts. He, he cleared himself. He let Saul know some beautiful things about their relationship and 
It didn't change Saul. It didn't change him a bit. Why? Because number four, the proud person will never reconcile apart from God himself revealing their sin. I can't tell you how many times I've given the facts to people. I've said, listen to me, look at me. This is what God's word says. Now let's cut this out. Let's do what God says. Here's the facts. And they sit in my office on my couch. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, that's what, yeah, I believe God. I believe the Bible. Okay, and, and it's all good, right? We're going to leave here and we're going to get it done. And a year later, we're still dealing with the same stuff. It's not because I haven't given the facts. It's not because I haven't preached God's word. It's not because we haven't given a really good explanation. It's, it's because only God can change the heart. It's not an information problem. It's a heart problem. I've had to learn that. I used to take blame for myself. I'm trying. My counseling's not working. My counseling isn't what's going to change you. God's going to change you. Your heart's got to be changed. I can sit with you all day long. We can talk and I can make all kinds of sense. But you have to make the decision. You can't change another person's heart. It's the hardest thing I've had to learn. Romans 12, 8. But if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Do, the, do everything you can do. David did everything he could do. He did. He did all he could do. But at the end of the day, it didn't work out. Saul died. David became king. But I think David could sleep well at night saying, I tried. I did everything I could do. Question number three. How does this biblical, uh, how does the biblical teaching on conflict resolution apply to divorce? Now, this is a, uh, I know it's a difficult subject, but in all fairness, let's, let's at least admit that this is not like, you know, hush, hush anymore. I mean, this touches every family in this room, right? I mean, for some of us, like myself, it's like right there, like. Boom, mom and dad divorced. For others, you might have to go another generation or you might have to say, well, my, you know, I've got divorce in, in this side of my family, but not on this. I mean, but all of us could, or maybe it touches you in your church family. Maybe it's touched you in, in your job, but all of us, no doubt, have been affected in some way by divorce. So it's got to be talked about. We just, we got to quit dodging this. Every family to an extent has, 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 has dealt with this. So let's start with this. Let's always remember that God hates divorce. He's not for divorce. You've got to start with that. In fact, Matthew 19, 5 clearly states that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So that's clear. You know, when I do weddings, and I do a lot of weddings, I find myself lecturing people because when I get to the vows... I'm like, okay, we really got to get these down. We're about to say some really serious things to one another. And this is not like, you know, until you don't want to anymore. This, listen to the vows. And I have them on the screen here. Would you repeat after me the following words? You know, I take thee to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for rich and for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part, till death. I mean, that's what we're saying. All of us have said that. Ecclesiastes teaches it's better not to vow a vow if you're not going to keep it. So this is serious. 
And we need to understand how God feels about it. And then we need to talk about it in terms of biblical allowances for divorce. Because there are some. So let's do that. Are there biblical allowances for divorce? The answer is yes. How many? There's two. And so let's go to God's word. Matthew 19 verse 8 first just tells us this. It says, help me out, Nate. (laughs) You all right? Okay. (laughs) Boy, Danae needs to know he held out really hard on that one. (laughs) Just kidding. He loves Danae. All right. I think they got in a fight this morning or something. I'm not sure, but no, I'm just kidding. He said to them, because of the hardness, we needed a light moment. Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. So obviously, God's grace, God's mercy was extended. He said, because of the hardness of your heart, hey, there are some exceptions. From the beginning, it wasn't so, but there are some exceptions. So here they are. He says, number one, the first exception, the first biblical allowance for divorce is whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. If you marry somebody else, you've committed adultery. That's pretty clear. That's like John 3.16 clear. I mean, it's like whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. So biblical allowance number one is this. Okay? The exception here is for for prolonged, repeated, unrepented of adultery. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Because I don't want us to start looking for the first ticket to get out of our marriages based on one moral failure. Let's go back to Hosea and Gomer. Come on, church. Is that not beautiful, what happened there? The forgiveness that Hosea extended to his wife, Gomer, after these repeated, prolonged, unrepented of terms of adultery, and yet their marriage still restored. Listen, I don't think we should be looking for the first ticket to get out. That is where forgiveness is huge. And marriages can be restored and marriages are restored. I really don't believe the Bible is necessarily teaching here that, okay, one more failure, you're done. But I do believe there is an exception here. And my personal belief is that it's for prolonged, unrepented of, repeated adultery. Second, biblical allowance. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If any man has a husband who is an unbeliever. So here's a woman, she has a husband, or here's a man, she has a wife. And they're not saved. They're they're an unbeliever, but they're married. Okay? And he consents to live with her. She should not divorce him. The next verse talks about, you know, it is the holiness of of the wife who is saved or the holiness of the husband who is saved. That actually could have an influence on that person getting saved. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. If the unbelieving partner splits, I'm moving to Chicago. I'm out of here. I'm tired of this. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. The second biblical allowance is desertion by a non-believing spouse. So if you have a non-believing spouse, they're not saved, and they just say, look, I'm out of here, I'm taking off, and they go move somewhere to, you know, wherever, California, you don't have to move with them and stand at their front door and wait for them to, no. According to Scripture, you're allowed to be out of that marriage. Now, I don't believe any Christian has the authority to make this decision by themselves. I don't. I do believe, and these are all important things that I'm saying, I do believe that, that God has given us in the church 
elders, mentors, people who we can go talk to. These are tough decisions. And we don't need to make these just all by ourselves. So there needs to be some counsel and some conversation. And for that, I'm thankful for the elders in our church and and for the ministry that God has given to our elder, Doug Gully, who was in the first service, who has a license. He's a licensed insured counselor and does more counseling than anybody else on our elder board, although I, I probably am right up there with him. But we both do a lot of counseling and we're thankful for that because we want to help people sort things out and not make decisions without wisdom and some rationale. Are you with me? So be careful. If you are unbiblically divorced, God's command is that you would remain single or be reconciled to that person. Now, you know, I had had quite a few people thank me in the small service this morning because notice I'm not preaching this like with with incredible authority or I have all the authority in the world because God's word says it. I'm not, I'm, but I'm sensitive because we've all been affected by this. And our minds are racing into a lot of different categories. But, but to look at God's word and to really understand it, sometimes we have to not dodge in the issues. We have to discuss the issues as a church family, if we're going to reconcile. I've seen God do that. I've seen people who have been unbiblically divorced get back together. Amen. That's beautiful. I've seen it happen on many occasions. Some in our church, some in other churches, some in places I've traveled, some in my own close family of friends. I've seen God do that kind of a thing. If you're unbiblically divorced or biblically divorced and remarried, I still feel as if I need to say this to our congregation, there may still need to be things you need to get right. Because again, remember, 12, Romans 12, 18, on the screen again, if possible, so far as it all depends on you, live peaceably with even your ex-spouse. Work through those things. Seek at least restitution in the sense of relationship and, friend, and friends. There's a lot more that can be said, but I want to address that issue because there is biblical teaching on conflict resolution and divorce. Number four, how do you reconcile with someone in the matter if the matter is criminal in nature? If someone is breaking the law, someone who steals, someone who assaults you or your family, someone who has sexually abused someone, they've been confronted. They said they're sorry. Is that enough? What should I do in a situation like that? Call the police. Period. Um, Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. You, You don't have authority to make that decision if someone has broken the law. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists that which God has appointed, then those who resist will incur judgment. Listen, church, sorrow is not an excuse for the consequences of breaking the law. Don't protect someone from the consequences of the choices they are making. Question five. How do you reconcile with repeat offenders? It's a toughie. 
This is someone who hasn't broken the law. This is someone who just, they keep doing the same thing over and over again. It's a sin. Yes, it's breaking God's law and it's hurting you. And they continue to do it. I'm not talking about sexual abuse. That was question four. We're talking now just about someone who is unkind, someone who treats me wrong, someone who does the same thing over and over again. This is not the biblical allowance for divorce. This is a marriage that just continues to struggle and the spouse is just is continuing to do the same thing over and over again. Well, let's go to Matthew 18 for the answer. Verse 21 says this, and please don't show the next verse until I give you that, Nate. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? So Peter has a question. He goes to Jesus. He says, hey, hey, Jesus, yo, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And then Peter gets really confident, somewhat cocky, and he says, I was thinking about seven times. That's what I was thinking. I mean, you know, they, they do me wrong, I forgive them. 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 They do me... I mean, that's a lot, Jesus. And here's his response. Mm. No. Not seven. But 77 times. The KJV says 70 times seven. And honestly, the interpretation there is just you keep on forgiving. You forgive and you forgive and you forgive and you forgive. The Bible teaches that we are called to continuous, total, unilateral, immediate forgiveness in all instances forever. Forever. This is the word of God. You see, the definition of forgiveness is a commitment to release a person from the obligation that resulted when they injured me. So we need to understand, church, this is what we sang about this morning. This is what forgiveness is all about. Jesus has forgiven us of so much. Listen, I am here for 26 years because I've learned to forgive you. You've learned to forgive me. It's just a big bunch of forgiveness going on around here. I've been married for 30 years because she is like the incredible forgiver. How many times have I done the wrong thing? And then repeated that and repeated it and repeated it and repeated it and then do better for six months and then do it again. And again, in the context of understanding what I'm saying, again, we're not talking about how many times did I cheat on my wife with another woman? You, you understand that. Just in case someone's looking for an escape hatch here, we're talking about, again, use some, use some just some common sense here. Forgiveness, though, is not one of these three things. So let's, let's, let's help those who are struggling. What is there any limitations? Well, number one, forgiveness is not enabling. Let's understand that. Now, what do we mean by that? Let me give you an illustration. Um, <clears throat> here is a family member. Let's just say it's a daughter. And she has run up all of her credit cards and they are over the limit. She has bought a car and it has gone back to the... She didn't make the payments. She is in a financial mess. She is struggling. She has taken advantage of monies that have been given her. And it's just, it's just a mess. Should I forgive her? Yes. Should I give her my credit card? No. Forgiveness is not enabling. 
Number two, forgiveness is not rescuing. Here's a son who, man, he, he just, he, he's got a lead foot. He speeds over and over again. He actually, my insurance now is sky high. He has lost his driver's license maybe, or he has wrecked the car. Should I forgive him? Yes. Should I give him the keys to my car? No. Forgiveness is not rescuing. Forgiveness is not enabling. Number three, forgiveness is not risking. It's not risking. He has a father-in-law and he's, he's an alcoholic. He drinks way too much. And when he drinks, he gets abusive. He uses profanity. And it just gets out of control, and it's a bad situation. I mean, I love him, but I mean, it's just out of control. And, and he, he won't get help for it, and he, he just he parties a lot. And, and we know there's going to be booze around the house. We've experienced some of this. And, and, and again, I'm just giving you an illustration here. And so, uh, sh- sh- should I forgive him? Yes. Should I go to his house for New Year's Eve? No. Forgiveness is not risky. So you see, what's beautiful about the Bible is we're always, we're always bailing because we, we don't consider some of the things that forgiveness is not. And at times we don't, confi- we don't figure some of the things that forgiveness is. And again, at the end of the day, what is this all about? What is this message teaching us? This final message with questions that we try to avoid that, I mean, how many preachers are actually... I mean, I hope all of us are, but I mean, I'm actually telling you, look, church, here's how to deal with me. (laughs) Here's how to deal with an authority figure if he won't repent. I mean, it's just in the Bible. I can't dodge it for my own sake. You got to deal with these things. But what does it all basically mean? What's the bottom line? What's the message to me as a church member? Why are you preaching this, pastor? Because of Romans 12, 18. I'm just reminding you, if possible, do all that you can. Give it all you got. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Every church member, your spouse, your kids, your nation, government, do the best you can. Give it all you got. Because that's all you can do. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let's bow for prayer, shall we? And as we bow our heads for prayer and consider these questions, I'm going to ask everybody here in this room just to consider this moment as a moment where we can seek Begin to seek the Holy Spirit's voice. What is he saying? What is he teaching? What is his word to us this morning? Is there a message that he has for us this morning? I mean, or is this going to be just another sermon that we, we hear, we sit through, we see the scripture? I think I counted this morning, I used about 35 verses at all. It's a lot of scripture, 35 verses. That's a lot. Because that's what matters. It's not about... Well, Brother Eric, that was a good message. It was more, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do? That's what it's about. 
Listen, I, I've given up on changing your heart. It, it, it's, it's just, it's, it's not possible. I, I, I'm not the Holy Spirit. And I get filled with pride when I think I can do it. I get filled with pride. I saved that marriage. Yeah, they talked to me last week and I think everything's better. You know, I'm, I'm getting better at this thing called counseling. I'm really good. I got a master's degree in counseling and I do. But to be honest with you, without the power of the Holy Spirit, all counsel's in vain. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, all preaching is waste of, of time. I don't want to stand up here and ever preach and all you hear is my voice. I want you to hear God's voice because that's what changes you. That's what makes the difference. That's what reconciles marriages. That's what reconciles relationships. That's what changes lives. It's the Holy Spirit of God inside of you saying, listen, listen. Are you listening? And if you are, would you let God change you this morning? And I would just encourage you this morning to, we're, we're moving on. I mean, this is it. Next Sunday is a different series. And you know it's going to be good because we're coming close to Thanksgiving and Christmas. And to be honest, I love this time of the year. I'm going to, oh, these have been some heavy messages, I know. I don't apologize because it's the word. But. I'm finished. So whatever the Lord is telling you to do, I do encourage you to consider talking to an elder or a mentor. I do con- I ask you to consider that before you make any decisions, seek godly counsel and let God help you to sort through it all. I'm going to pray. We're going to stand, worship. If you need to come forward, the altars are open. If you need to trust Christ this morning, give your heart to him. We're here. Brother Butch, one of our elders is here. I'm here. If you want us to pray with you just for a moment right now, we will. If not, we can do it after the service. Father, we love you. Take this moment. Move, work, speak. We release this truth to the congregation. We ask you to open the hearts of our people that they might receive the seed that's been sown today in this service. Help us, Father, to take our brokenness. And Father, may your amazing grace pour into our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we stand?